0: My last sermon in, in the Abraham series, and this is kind of where we get to the end of Abraham's faith walk. He, the story goes on about Abraham, but this is the last big moment in his faith, faith walk, and you all kind of know what's coming, because you saw the video at the beginning of the service, and if you didn't, shame on you, you must have been talking during the video. But uh, we, we, we know what's coming here, but I want to actually talk about it as perfected faith. The finished, perfected faith of Abraham. Because we've walked with him. Abraham's our our vision of what faith is. He's our paradigm. He's, He's our model. And we've walked with him this whole time. And now we get to the end of this moment, which is really where his faith just is perfected. And there's a scripture in Hebrews. The Hebrews writers puts it this way. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run the race that is set before us with endurance, looking always unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I love the way the, this is the New King James Version, the King James puts it, the author and the finisher of our faith. It's also sometimes said the completer or sometimes called the perfecter of our faith. But I love the author and finisher. It's just, I don't know, I've always liked that phrase. But the idea is that Jesus gives you faith to start. Because you can't even come to Jesus without faith to believe in him. But he doesn't stop there. He's continually working on your faith and trying to get you to a point where it's finished when your faith is strong enough to accomplish everything you need to have accomplished in a Christian life. Now, I like to have... Jesus finished my faith and perfected it, but I'm not there yet, right? But I'm still kind of working on that. We actually get a picture. We've seen Abraham's faith falter sometimes. We've seen what his faith looks like. But we're going to get a picture of what perfected, finished faith looks like today. Before I get to it, let me give you a spoiler alert. Here's what it looks like. All you need in your life is Jesus. Nothing else is going to distract you. Nothing else is going to pull you away. Perfect faith is Jesus and nothing but Jesus. Uh, is just Jesus enough for you? C.S. Lewis put it this way. I always like C.S. Lewis because he has a way of quoting things perfectly. Uh, Here's what he says. He says, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. That's uh, quite a mouthful, but digest that for a second. And I want you to understand what he's saying. I I think he's right, but do you believe this? Could you say that faith in God alone, you know, my belief in having God or Jesus alone is the same as having Jesus plus anything or plus everything? See, that's a hard, actually very, very hard teaching that C.S. Lewis is throwing out. He has that one line in his book that sometimes you have to read C.S. Lewis in pieces because sometimes he gives these lines like that. It's a hard line. That's a hard teaching. not sure I do believe it. I want to believe it, I want to be that person. I'm not sure that I am, though. Now, I'm not saying that I need the world, right? I mean, I've, I've gr- grown up in the church, and I know the answer to, which would you rather have, all the world but Jesus? Oh, I'll take Jesus over all the world, right? I, I grew up in the church, and I know the answer to that. Plus, I've lived a life. I know the answer to that. So if you're going to say, well, who would you rather be? You know, which life would you rather have, your life or, or somebody else's life who seems to have everything? I know the answer to that question. I'll take Jesus. I'd rather have salvation than jets and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and I'm assuming—I don't know—I'm assuming he wasn't saved. Uh, I'm, I want to—I want to bet on. I, I, okay, I bet a little bit on it. But but you know, I, I don't—I don't like to determine these kind of things. But he probably wasn't living a, a sanctified, righteous life. And uh, but he had everything—mansions, jets, you know, women, everything that you know the world can offer you. Really, it, he had. I. I'd rather have Jesus. I can honestly say, given all that, I'd rather have Jesus. So given the choice between the world and Jesus, I know the answer is Jesus. But that's not what C.S. Lewis says. He says a man who has Jesus only has the same amount as a man who has Jesus plus everything. And I don't know, because I can say, yeah, I don't want to be this guy. But what about this guy? Uh, So just so for those of you who don't know who this is, this is Stephen Furtick. He's the pastor of Elevation Church, one of the largest churches in the country. This man's saved. I really believe that. I mean, again, I I don't know what's inside anybody's heart, but I've heard him preach. I I believe he's saved. I really do. I believe he's saved. I believe he's going to heaven. So he's got salvation. Plus, he has the largest church in America. Plus, this is a screenshot from his church. I just got to show you guys because you probably can't make it out. This is a water slide leading down into a baptismal. Now, come on. That's cool. I mean, it's okay that we do ours inside of a pool, but we don't have a water slide going down. You guys all want to go get baptized again now, don't you? I mean, I have people lining up and buying tickets to get baptized. If we had that, that's cool. And that church, by the way, is his church. That, for all I know, this is a Photoshop picture. I don't even know. I found it online. But that's his church. That's how many people showing up to his church, and this is only one of his campuses Am I really saying that I'm okay not having any of this? He saved it. He's, he's married to a wonderful Christian woman. He's got he lovely Christian children. This is his house, by the way, 6,000 square foot house that costs $1.7 million. The master bathroom of this house, I know this because this actually shows up in the newspaper. The master bathroom of this house is as big as the first floor of my house. All right. So he's got Jesus plus all this. Am I really saying that's okay? I'm all right. I don't need Jesus plus all that. I'm okay with just Jesus. Just give me Jesus. And I'm okay with that. Because that's what C.S. Lewis is saying. And this is where we have to get with perfected faith. Do you need God plus anything in your life? Because it's kind of the American way. We want God plus the American dream. That's how I was brought up. Were you? I mean, I wasn't brought up as a Christian, I was brought up as an American Christian. You know, and I believe that with hard work you could have anything. And so I believe that I I should just set my goals and and work hard and I would get God plus everything. That's what my life was set to do. And C.S. Lewis is saying, no, actually, God plus anything else doesn't matter. Because Jesus is everything. If you're holding everything in your hand, nothing else matters, right? How can you put anything else there? Jesus is everything. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. And that's what Abraham's faith looks like when it's perfected. So here's the story. I'm going to read this because sometimes I get asked these questions. What translation was that? I usually go with NASB, which is what we have in the seats. But I'm going to read this out of the New International Revised Version, Reader's Version. Uh, It just reads a little better. So here, here it comes. So sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. And God said, take your son, your only son. He is the one you love. Take Isaac. Go to the place called Moriah and give me your son. Give your son to me there as a burnt offering. Sacrifice him on the mountain. I will show you. Now, God is being very specific about what he's asking for here. He's very specific about which son. Abraham actually has two sons at this point in his life. He has one from the slave girl or the the servant Hagar, whom he married and had a wife with. But that, that son wasn't the one God promised. Then he has Isaac. The one that he loves. The one that comes from the woman that he loves that he just got a couple years ago. He's saying like, that's the one I want you to take. And this isn't a baby dedication. We're going to sprinkle some water on his head. This is the real deal. Burnt offering. This is the real deal. So it, the first thing it says is sometime later God came and tested him. Now why does God test us? We've discussed this before. God does not give a test the way the world gives a test. The world gives a test so you can prove what you've learned to them and they know what you know. Usually to get some kind of certification, usually that's why you're getting a test. If, if you ever listen or pay attention to the graduation ceremonies, this is always part of it. You know, the person who stands before the school board director or whatever says that we have taken these children through the curriculum and they have passed the test and they're ready to graduate. Right, We have taken them up and we can prove that they've learned what we meant to teach them because they've passed the tests and they're all ready to graduate. That's how it starts. Same thing with driver's test. You have to pass the test so you get your driver's license. Why? Because the cop doesn't know what you know or whoever's giving you the test. And when you're all done, he say, okay, yeah, you know what we want you to know. And so here you go. Here's your driver's license. That's how the world gives tests because they don't know what you know. The only way they could know is to test you. That's not why God gives a test. He knows what you know. That's not why he does. God actually tests us so we know what we believe. That's why he tests you. He, the test isn't given for his purpose and for his sake. He knows. He knows exactly what Abraham is going to do. He does. He, 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 is, he, he lives in the future. He's infinite. He knows these things. He's not baffled. But Abraham doesn't know what he's going to do until God tests him. And so he does. Early, early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, took two of his servants and his son Isaac with him. He cut enough wood for the burnt offering and they started out for the place God had shown him. On the third day, it took a long time to get there, Abraham saw (laughs) the place a long way off. And he said to his servant, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship. And then we'll come back to you. Well, actually, Isaac's not coming back, but he doesn't tell anybody that. He's told nobody. He certainly did not tell his wife who would have never let him go through this crazy idea. right? And so, I and the boy will go over and we'll worship. We'll come back. Abraham had his son Isaac carry the wood for the burnt offering, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked together, Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Well, that's a sharp kid right there. It's like, wait a second. I got the wood. I got stuff to make the fire. See the knife. Where's the lamb? That's a good question. It's a really, really good question, as it turns out, because he's the lamb. It's him. And he's like, what's going on? He's starting to put it together. Now, I just want to take a moment here. I, I want you to, to feel Abraham's anguish at this point. This is Isaac. And we talked about this last week. Isaac means he who laughs. I think this kid was one of those just joyful kids that laughed and giggled and had this infectious laugh. And you know that this really made Abraham's heart sing. When he heard his son laugh, he was 100 years old when he was born. He waited 25 years since the promise, he waited longer than that, to finally have a son. He finally has him. And he's everything he ever wanted in a son. He's joyful and he's laughing and he's fun to be around. He loves him so much. And that son just looked up at him with trusting eyes and said, where's the lamb? Well, Abraham knows he's the lamb. He says, the Lord will provide, and they keep walking. The Lord has provided. He already provided the lamb. His name is Isaac. I, I want you to feel Abraham's heart here. It must be about ready to break. And, and I really believe, uh, it, it, there's nothing in the Bible that tells me this. I believe in his mind he's going through this. I can't do this. I have to do this. I can't do this. I have to do this. I can't do this. I think he's doing that in his head all the way up there. This must be one of the hard, have you ever had one of those decisions where you knew you had to do it, you hated the idea that you had to do it? And all kinds of these little things happen in our lives. They're smaller than this, of course. We never go through anything like this, I don't think. I've never gone through anything like this. But I've done some things that were hard that I was dreading, but I had to do them. And sometimes, I, mean, I remember one time, uh, my daughter, Emily, needed to have blood tests, and she was scared to death of needles. She was about three years old and she'd have to have, to have a blood test. And they took her back, you know, these little tiny vampire places that take them in the back. And uh, they said, it's better if the parent doesn't come. I said, oh, that's okay. It's better for me if the parent didn't go either, you know. Because I knew she was going to be screaming. And so she goes back, and I hear her screaming, like, oh, you know, it's just hurting. But we had to get this test in order to rule out some disease that the doctor thought she might have. So we had to have it. And finally, the woman comes out, kind of flustered, and says, I'm sorry. We're going to have to have you come back and hold her. So now I go from just being the guy who traitor brought her here, I'm going to have to be the one who holds her down when they stick her with a needle. you know. And when I walk in there, her eyes lit up because Daddy was there. You know. Protector arrives. Oh, thank God. You know? And she comes running to me, Daddy, Daddy. And I pick her up and she's crying, she's sobbing. She's hugging on me so tight. You know? I, said, I said, it's okay, it's okay. Even though I knew what I was going to do next. I sat down in the chair. I said, honey, you're just going to have to trust me. I spun her around, I put her on my lap. I took her hand and I held it down with both arms and she just screamed in my ear while they drew blood. I didn't want to do that. I can't imagine taking a knife to her throat. I just can't even imagine what Abraham was going through. This is what his, this is the reality of, of his life though sometimes we you know we forget that this is not a baby dedication. this is a baby sacrifice. So they reached the place God had shown Abraham there Abraham built an altar, he arranged the wood on it, and then he tied up his son. I can't even imagine Abraham placed him on the altar on top of the wood, he reached out his hand. He picked up the knife to kill his son. Now, I want to just say one thing here. Um, What Abraham was doing is the most barbaric thing we can imagine, but it was commonplace in that area at that time. Commonplace. In In the land around, we talked about how evil they were. Child sacrifice was part of religion, but never their only son. You know, to some degree, it almost like makes sense because all the other gods were requiring children's sacrifice. In fact, it was so prevalent, this is true, that when the Israelites come back later out of Egypt, God has to pass a law to stop it because they start doing it. Because everybody around them does. It's called firewalking. They literally push their kids into fire. So although this is like I can't even imagine, and why would he even think God would want such a thing? Well, every God was asking for that sort of thing. But he still has to do it with his only son? Really? Can you do that? I, I don't know. And as he knifes up in the air, the angel of the Lord calls out to him from heaven. Now, when the Bible uses this phraseology, angel of the Lord, it's a capital L, most theologians and scholars believe this is literally Jesus Christ. And I think when we hear what he's about to say, I think Jesus literally is the angel here. He says, Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham replies, I am here. Do not lay a hand on the boy, says the angel. Do not harm him. Now I know. See, that's why I believe this is Jesus. Now I know that you would do anything for god you have not held back for him your son your only son but he waited till the knife was in the air why you know this is something always kind of kind of haunted me a little bit when i even when i was a kid if god knew abraham's heart why would he let him take it this far come on he would already made a three-day journey can we just call that good enough I mean, really, you know his heart. You know what he's going to do. Can we just take him three days out in the wilderness and tell him that's okay, Abraham, (laughs) psych. I wasn't going to make you do that. I know what's in your heart. He knows Abraham's heart, right? Why is he making him actually pick up the knife? This man's 100 years old. Can his heart even take it? But see, part of the problem is that we have somehow in America separated faith, faith and works. And in fact, we consider works bad. You know, that's like a bad four-letter word in our, in our world. And I don't mean work. Works somehow becomes a four-letter word. Because it's like, uh, works are bad, you know, that's all works. When I, when I had someone asked me about tithing, oh, tithing's works. Really? <laughs> I, it just, everything's works. Anything that's works is bad. All you need is faith and nothing but faith. That's probably how some people here got started in the faith. And I don't know if you've ever been to these services. Maybe you haven't. Great. If you haven't, great. But I was raised in the church and I was in a lot of these services where the preacher preaches his hellfire and brimstone kind of sermon and got the crowd emotionally moving. And then it all ends up, the organ starts playing softly in the background. And the preacher says this, okay, I want everybody to close their eyes and bow their heads. And with every eye closed and every head bowed, if you think God wants you to become a Christian today, just lift up your hand. No one will see it. Ever been in that service? Some of you are looking at me like I'm not. Some of you, are like, yeah, I'm in that service all the time. Just 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 lift up your hand. No one will see it. I'll call out their names if I hear see somebody looking around. No one's looking around. You're clear. No, no one has to know this is just a belief in your heart because it's all that matters. No, it's not. No, it's not. That's not the faith of the Bible. That's the faith that people are trying to get numbers. So we can say we got this number of salvations. We, they got no salvations. That doesn't count. It counts when the knife is in the air. When you're committed. When you have decided, you know what, I'm going to do this, whether it makes sense or not. James tells us that. When James retells the story in his letter, he says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Works, not faith. Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works, faith was made perfect? Don't you see that? If you want to talk about how his faith was perfected, here's how. He was willing to do it. He was doing it. He wasn't just willing to do it. He was actually in the act of obeying when God stops him. He said that's when his faith becomes perfect. Your faith isn't perfect when it's kept in your mind, in your little heart. It isn't until you you actually go to do what God told you to do that your faith becomes perfect. Until that, it's useless Abraham believed God who was counted him as righteousness. He was called the <laughs> friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. He goes on to say, faith without works is dead. This is the faith of the Bible. This is the faith of Abraham. This is what it looks like when you're looking at perfected faith. Listen, we've been on this for 13 weeks. If there is one thing that Abraham's life should show us over and over again, is that real faith is belief in action. What you hold in your heart doesn't matter to anything. You think it, you feel it, doesn't matter. What do you do? What do you do? In this case, Abraham is being required to do something that none of us have ever been required to do. God's going to do it. But we've never been required to do this. Why? Why does God require Abraham to sacrifice his only son? Why would he do such a thing? I'll tell you why. Because it was one thing he loved most in life on earth. That's why. Because he loved Isaac more than anything. And what God's saying is, do you love him more than me? If you want to know what perfected faith looks like, it's when nothing stands between your heart and the heart of God. Every day I say this, every morning or every evening, whenever we get ready to do the service, there's always a prayer I pray and what I always say. Bring us heart to heart with a living God. God wants to go heart to heart with nothing between it. What's between your heart and the heart of God? See, our problem is that a lot of times we think, um, well, we shouldn't have bad things between our heart and the heart of God. That addiction in our life has to go. This sin, whatever that sin is, whatever it is, lust, pornography, anger, whatever your favorite sin is, that needs to go. We know that, right? What God is saying through Abraham here is it's more than that. And we know that because Jesus says this. If you remember in, in the, the Gospels, this rich young ruler comes up to Jesus you know, the famous story, the rich young ruler, and we call him rich young ruler, but that would mean probably that he was a Sadducee, well positioned in the temple, and he probably sat on the Sanhedrin, which would have been their kind of trial, you know, their, their, their jury or whatever that, that decided things. So he wasn't just a guy, he was a guy with considerable religious and political power. That's why he's called a rich young ruler. Okay, so he comes up, as Jesus starts on his way, a man runs up and says, good teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? This is amazing. This guy is a who's who of the religious world in Jesus' day. This would be like some teacher, some, you know, going by, and I'll pick your favorite uh, that you kind of keep a little bit on a pestle, Preacher, not me of course, somebody like Billy Graham or somebody, Billy Graham or, or Stephen Furtek or, or Charles Stanley or something, running up to another teacher and saying, what must I do to be saved? That's what this is. He's like supposed to know this. He judges other people who don't know it. And he's coming to Jesus saying, I think you know the answer and I know I don't. What do I have to do to be saved? And what has Jesus said? You call me good. Well, there's no one good but God. See, he's establishing right now, you're not just coming to me because I'm a good teacher. You're coming to me because you think I'm God, and I can give you the answer. He wants to establish that first because he's about to give him a hard answer, and he wants to know it's not coming from a good guy. It's coming from God. And at first he tries to give him an out. Well, you know the commandments. And I like how Jesus doesn't even give them all. He just kind of rips through a few of them. You know, uh, Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't be a false witness. Don't cheat. And honor your father and your mother. That's not even all of them. You know, just throws them out. You know the, you know the commandments. He says, teacher, I've done all those since I was a little boy. <laughs> I do know those commandments. Do you think I'd be in the position I am if I didn't keep those commandments? i do them. I've done them forever. Now watch this next sentence. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus really takes a moment to pause and look at him. And he really feels a love for this man. Because he's trying. This isn't just some flip question that he's trying to trap him. Jesus looks at him and says, "This is the heart of a man who really wants to know the answer." And I don't think Jesus wants to give it to him, but he does. He says, "Okay, you're right. You're missing one thing." Because this guy knew all the teaching of all the rabbis of all the. Th- it wasn't enough. There's something missing. There's something else. He goes, you, "You're right." There's one thing you're missing. Go and sell everything you have. Give the money to those who are poor and you have treasure in heaven and you can come and follow me. And the man's face falls and he went away sad because he was very rich. Do you know why Jesus pointed to the wealth? Because it's the one thing he loved most in life. It's not that Jesus is against wealth any more than God was against Isaac. Jesus is doing the same thing here in Mark that God's doing with Abraham. What do you love more than me? What's the one thing that will come between us that's between our hearts? He said, you can do all the rules in the world as long as you love money more than me. It's not going to be any good. And he tells us that later too. He says, look, you can't serve two masters. Either you're going to hate the one and love the other or you're going to be loyal to one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. I know some translations say... The wealth there but it's not what jesus said jesus said mammon mammon was the god of the world you can't look at anything else over there and serve me in that it's the same message that god was testing abraham with what's between you and me our problem is that what we think is if we have only good things god's okay with them in fact we all have this list in our minds of what's good and what's bad And where you are on the list determines what's below you and above you. But everybody has that list. You have to understand everybody has a list. Everybody does. You can go to a prison and there's people locked up for murder and they have a list. You know how I know that? Because if a child molester gets put in a prison with them, they try to kill them. They may have killed 35 men and women. But man, if you mess with a child, that's even worse for them. Right? They all have a list. At least I'm not that guy. I wish I was that guy, but at least I'm not that guy. That's always the list, that's the purpose of the list, is to tell you where you are. There's good things and there's bad things. And you know, if if somebody's a a drug addict, they have a list. And they're thinking, man, I wish I was just a drunk. Because I could be a functioning alcoholic like my friend, but I'm a drug addict and I'm out here selling my body for it. I wish I was an alcoholic. Believe it or not, people do wish that because they're stuck on drugs. They look, man, I used to be just an alcoholic. Life was easier then. Life was better. become an alcoholic, man, I wish I was just hooked on cigarettes. You know, my buddy, he smokes five packs a day, but at least he can still hold a job. I'm a drunk. It doesn't matter where you are on the list. There's always somebody above you on the list, and there's somebody below you on the list. And you think you're better than those people below you, and you think you're not as good as the people above you. That's how the list works. And you work way up the list until you get to the point where you're pretty good. It's like, I'm here, I'm all right. I wish I could do this, but I'm pretty good here. And there's still things on that list that we look at and we thought, you know, I have these things and that's good. I love my country. I love my family. I love my church. Right? Those are good things. But they're not. Charles Manson loved his family. Hitler was a great patriot. There's all kinds of people who love their church and have done all kinds of bad things in the name of their church. None of these things are really good. We have to understand that this list ends up going under the foot of the one who has nail-scarred feet. And everything below it doesn't matter. That's what he's saying. He's saying, it doesn't matter. Your list doesn't matter. I don't care. Is having a child good? Sure, it's good. Unless it comes between you and God. There's nothing wrong with children or grandchildren, but is it coming between you and God? Is there something between your heart and the heart of the living God? Would you be willing to sacrifice it if he told you to? Would you ever get to the point where the knife was in your hand? See, that was Abraham. That was his life. That's why he was called a friend of God. And that's why James says his his faith was perfected. The author and the finisher of your faith is telling you it does not about finding a better list. Christianity seems to be really good at lists. It is not about finding a better list. It is this. It is only God, or it is nothing. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you will give us the courage to look in our lives at the things that's coming between you and me. It may seem like a small thing. It may even seem like a good thing. But anything that is keeping my heart from coming to the heart of the living God is a bad thing. Give us the courage to look Give us the courage to change our lives in the ways we need to so that nothing comes between you and us. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.